Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Excited to have a conversation with my guest today. She's an executive director, an artist, and a musician. Today I have with me Sonia Gibbs. Hi, Sonia. Hey, hey. So good to have you with us. Thank you. And I'm going to start with you, like I do all my guests, and ask, what is your labor of love? Mm. Yeah, labor of love, uh, three labors of love, maybe. But the first thing I thought of in that question is um, myself. Yeah, loving myself. Um, uh, And then um, out of that, um, loving uh, my fellow Korean-American adoptee women. I have a little project, some things going on there. And um, then some uh, BIPOC work in that intersection of faith, arts, and justice. So those three things are, um, yeah, but starting with my own inner life and um, self, which has just been a really long journey, um, particularly as an adoptee. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's been a work. So let's start there since it was the first you named and it, it sounds like the way you framed it was, and if I'm wrong, you can let me know that it's out of that inner world and self-love that you're able to participate in these other labors of love. So how, how you said it's been a journey and to whatever degree and depth you want to take us on, how did that journey begin for you? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been sporadic for a very long time. So I would say for the majority of my life, the investigation into myself, uh, it felt so selfish and it felt so, yeah, uh, and difficult and challenging and scary. And so um, there would be moments like when I had my first child or or every time I go to the doctor and I have to fill out a medical record and I'm like, oh, I actually don't know my biological history. How do I answer these questions and sort of create that inner conflict? Uh, but it was here and there, very sporadic until 2018. And um I would say 2015 to 2018 started getting really agitational for me. And part of that was um, I was starting to do foster care. And so um, just interacting with uh, children and moms and families. And uh, it, yeah, that was pretty disruptive and and um, making me ask some questions of my own life and investigating. Um, and that turned into an adoption, a transracial adoption which made me then consider my own transracial adoption experience. And, um, um, and then I had a, um, yeah, a pretty uh, traumatic experience where, um, a, a member of my congregation, a, uh, one of the, I live in a very white city. So one of few black men in my neighborhood, um, a friend of mine was shot and killed. And so that happened in 2018. So that moment forced me, so I'm a Korean American adoptee, 
forced me into this. What does a Korean American woman have to say about a black man getting shot by white cops in America? That was right. Um, I hadn't had to honestly. Um, I talk about the the privilege of distance. I didn't have to wrestle with that. It was something that happened away from me in another city, in another place to other people. And and suddenly I had to locate myself and figure out where, yeah, it was a, yeah. So those were the the two big things that externally forced me inside, um, yeah, to really investigate. So yeah, those things launched me. Mm, thank you for sharing. So I, I have a curiosity. When you say these things forced you inside and to look, is it your hindsight observation that these were the first opportunities that you took advantage of to go inside? Or do you think there were other opportunities in the past that could have equally forced you inside, but because of whatever was going on, you were able to maintain a distance? Well, yeah, it, what you just said, for sure, <laughs> 100%. And, and part of that was, yeah, I would say being raised in a white family, in a very white environment. You know, I was like, there were maybe a dozen kids of color in my 2000 person high school, right? So my environment was doing everything. My college was the same, right? All of my environments were very much um, keeping me with a particular framework. And so I definitely had opportunities. Um, and those, like I was saying, like those moments where I was like, hey, wait a second, you know, hold on a moment. Um, but then it was really easy for me both easy and what it costs to investigate, right? I was not willing to um, pay that price or, um, yeah, do that work. Mm -hmm. And nor was it an, nor was I in an environment that was encouraging that, right? Um, everything around me would have been like, it's cool. Keep it status quo, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's for really disruptive. So let's talk identity, for a moment, right? And I don't think you can talk about identities without talking intersections. But before we get into these intersections, to the best of your ability, can you talk to us a little bit about how these individual identity points shaped? Well, who you are, yes, but how you arrive at the labors of love in which you have now. So there's being a Korean American woman. Were you born in the U.S.? No, born in Korea, South Korea. Born in South Korea. So talk a little bit about that identity point. And when did you, did you know that? Like, I'm trying to be clear. I think like, I, I know you know what I'm asking, but to be clear for <laughs> listeners, right? Yeah. There is a I want people to understand, and I think a lot of people could possibly relate to this, that you can live a lot of your life not knowing your particular identity. Mm -hmm. Growing up in Detroit, where everything, everyone around me was Black, African-American, melanated, except for my teachers. Mm. They were like the only interaction with non-melanated folks that I got. Mm. And so I looked like so many people that I was around, and my positionality as an African-American woman did not become a uh, something that I was aware of really until college mm. and what that meant. So to, you know, when I'm not asking is 
Well, maybe I am asking when you looked in the mirror, Mm -hmm. what did you see? Who did you see? And Mm -hmm. when did you become aware that you were a South Korean woman? Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. And I would say for years, you know, I mean, there's this obvious thing, right? When I'm a little kid and I'm like, hey, mom, you know, talking to my adoptive parents, you know, why are my eyes shaped this way? (laughs) Why, you know, why isn't my hair, you know, I was always asking for perms because it was the eighties and I wanted to have a perm like everybody else. And, and, and that's the point. I think I just wanted to fit in so badly as we all do when we're kids. And I would, whenever I would bring attention to my differences, I think the answer that I would often get was, it doesn't matter. You're American, you know, Mm. (laughs) those were the things. And so in some ways there was a lot of right good intention, but um, denying and inviting me to deny what I looked like, the conflict that I experienced because I looked different, um, the outsiderness that I felt but had to bury. And so, um, you know, the thing that I learned to do was to assimilate. And that assimilation was so internalized. Um, Even into, I was just sharing this with a friend the other day, I was in my early thirties, um, uh, doing some background vocals and keys for, at a big black gospel convention for a friend of mine. And so, um, I look around the room, there's eight to 10,000 black folks, predominantly black folks in the room for this black gospel event. And I lean over to my white partner and I say, Hey, we're the only white people in the room. And he's like, nah, I'm the only white person in the room. Like you're Korean, right? And I was like, oh, funny, ha, 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 ha. So again, one of those moments, right, that I could have been like, hey, that's interesting that I associate, view myself in such a way that it didn't even occur to me Mm. that I look this way. So had I looked in a mirror a million times, obviously, but when I looked in the mirror, it's like I was so in denial of Right. Like what Mm -hmm. I looked like. And um, it really it I I mean, I say that now and I just see it's almost embarrassing in a way. But the real I think as I talk with other adoptees, particularly I I could say Korean-American women adoptees, um, we all have this experience. um, And and um, I'm reminded, too, of another moment, like even as a kid, I would stare in the mirror and just like look at myself and kind of like like my eyes, like looking inside, like, who are you? Like, you know, it's like there it's such a yeah, I don't even really have words, just more experiences of what it's like to see yourself physically, but internally be completely another and then being lost between those two worlds. Mm. And, um, it has, uh, for me, because I didn't seriously investigate it until my forties, you know, God, I wish, you know, it, it, it was, it was really calcified. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of that stuff yeah. was, was really, is really deeply rooted. And I'm still right in that dirt uprooting some of those, those things that are, yeah, really embedded and entwined. Mm. Thank you. I'm just taking a deep breath because I I noticed the sensations I have in my chest area and my heart and and really just wanting to allow the space for the the gravity that that 
deserves to be able to sit with you in that. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. So we talk kind of about this, this racial, maybe even ethnic identity. Now talk to us a little bit about being an adoptee. And again, I know that intersections are not such that you can separate them. Like they're so interwoven, but then you have, so you have this experience where you're growing up in an, in an environment where you are not being reflected. And when you literally look at your reflection, there's conflict between everything else in the world that is being reflected upon you and then what you see. And I, I honor that. And then this experience of an adoptee. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's become a really important um, point in my identity that I had, again, for a very long time um, ignored. And um yeah, so I mean, I would say it's, and this is a very live thing. So I, you know, I, it's a very in motion and and moving and um, and challenging. But um, I would say that I'm beginning to have pride in being an adoptee, whereas before it was a place of shame for me. Um, mm -hmm. And and what I didn't realize that was in connection to the adoptee thing is like I started. I would tell my story starting at the moment of adoption not at the things that happened prior to that, that made adoption the, the choice, right. Or the, the action. And so part of being an adoptee is wrestling and reckoning with abandonment. And I think for a long time, I just, yeah, it was, I just ignored that. And when that finally came, yeah, started coming up, I realized actually how profoundly like impactful that was actually, that was the seed, right. Mm -hmm. Of my life. That was the starting point that I had to wrestle with and recognizing that, oh my God, like this, that sense of not, okay. I'm going to say this even though, I, right. Of not being worth keeping. Yeah. Right. Um, that was the actual wound pain loss that was guiding my entire life and all of my decisions. And I had no idea. So being an adoptee was, yeah. So it, all that to say, it's been really, really hard and disruptive and that, right, the ground that I had based everything on, right, was suddenly, you know, erupted, right? A bit large earthquake, a big crater. And I, I was like, I don't even, yeah. So, um the adoptee thing, you know, I, I was, one of the things I hear a lot around adoption in, in my circles is, is always being told to be grateful. And so there was always a sense of like, well, I should just be so grateful. <laughs> and therefore I need to, you know, yeah, just demonstrate my gratitude all the time, which was also one of those things that kept me away from really wrestling with and dealing with that abandonment piece. But it wasn't until that, that I could actually even then come back to, okay, Adopted means what, right? It informs that next part. Mm. Again, deep breath. I appreciate that so much. And what I wrote down before that I wanted to come to, and this feels like a good natural place, is I have the, the honor of working with a lot of adoptive and fostering family situations. 
I also had really close proximity to um, a family dynamic that involved a lot of adoptive children within one family. And there is this overwhelming belief that the child or children who are adopted are the benefactors of this great gift. And I'm not going to say that they are not benefactors of this amazing gift of family and connection, support, and safety. But I also know that so many of those families don't provide those things I just named. And how when families and people are going into the fostering and adoptive space, it's not introduced that way. You are being given the opportunity to receive a gift. And how will you prepare yourself in your home to nurture this gift, to support this gift, and to pour into this gift? Instead, it almost feels like you should just be grateful because. And I've seen that play out so many times. It is the foundation through which people have provided the bare minimum to children and sometimes adults coming into their home and saying, but at least you had this, mm-hmm. right? So there, there, there is that. And I, I heard that swelling up in, in what you said. I am curious if, well, that's interesting. As I was posing that question, I thought when I think of some families that the adoptee and the adoptive family share racial similarities sometimes there there isn't um there isn't discussion that's had about it right people might make assumptions that this was part of a birth family and there aren't a lot of questions or people who ask questions but you being a transracial adoptee Mm -hmm. meant that there was probably always some curiosity or questioning Mm -hmm. just because people were looking at you and looking at your adoptive family going oh it's a thing here so did you have adoptive siblings and what was it like how did those questions and curiosities get answered to people outside of the family Mm -hmm. yeah so I have a younger brother not biological but also adopted from Korea and he's two and a half years younger than me um So, I mean, I have a a million memories of, of, you know, sitting at a restaurant, right. And people coming over and um, yeah, again, sort of reiterating that, oh, this is just so beautiful. Like praising my parents for adopting us, you know, like we're right there. Right. But, oh, you're so amazing for, you know, yeah. Taking in these orphans is really the sentiment, if not the direct language. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, reiterated, aren't you so grateful that you're a part of this beautiful family? And, um, yeah, that was definitely there. And, um, you know, I don't, you don't, I, I didn't realize when I was a kid Right. I, I just not along. Yeah. Yes, I am grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful I'm not in an orphanage without a family or on the street or yeah. I mean, there are a million maybe worse case or worser or, you know, like, but it just, yeah, gave that, that sentiment and whether intentional or not, I mean, how could you, how could uh, without intention, right? Um, reframe that for someone. And certainly my parents were not given the tools or the resources to know how to reframe that for anyone who was inquiring. Um, 
Yes. They didn't have that for themselves. They certainly did not have that for anyone else who was coming in and, and making comments. And yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. How old were you when you were adopted? A uh, baby, five months old. Gotcha. So baby. So yep. the only mm-hmm. memories you have is with this family. Right. right. Yeah, gotcha. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this, everything that we've been talking about thus far, can you talk to us a little bit about the correlation between those early experiences and your own sense of self-worth not as you see it now and have been doing the inner work but growing up what did the journey of or the concept of self-worth what did that look like for you yeah um I I was such an overachiever I can look back now right like you're you know I can look back at that now and say okay I can point out some reasons why I may have been that but I I really was always trying to be the best to prove that I could do everything. You know, I had to win the top awards, be the, win the solos, right? Um, I would put in all the practice time. I would study all the things and uh, yeah, I, I was a super achiever and that was the way in which I got affirmation. So I, I would, I have been desperate for external affirmation because I was never inherently good enough. I didn't know that that's what I, that was there, but right. I wasn't aware of that. So it was, I needed teachers to tell me how awesome I was. I needed lots of gold stars, literal stickers. Like I needed to be ahead on those sticker charts in elementary school. Um, I can remember to this day in second grade at the end of the year, um, getting an award because I only missed one spelling word that I can tell you this right now, right? 40 years later, like, hey, I won a, a spelling award in second grade tells you like how, you know, so my self-esteem was all around what I could achieve or accomplish. And that is the information that would tell me that I was enough. Mm-hmm. A curiosity that's arising for me as I hear you talk, right, is I've had this conversation with um, several uh, loved ones, folks, people have been on the podcast, but just people in my circle who identify as, you know, AAPI, right? And they might say this, this, this stereotype or trope or embedded knowing of the model minority mm-hmm. shows up for them mm-hmm. and they haven't been adoptees they mm-hmm. right they some of them were born in other countries and come here some were born here but mm-hmm. there is this through line that is not specific to those who identify as asian american but it is this this kind of mm-hmm. thing that exists right the model minority mm-hmm. and that exists because there is the spectrum of humanness with mm-hmm. whiteness being the definition mm-hmm. and the picture mm-hmm. of humanity, blackness being the opposite of that. And everyone who doesn't fall in one of those categories falling somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And in, in order to, you know, achieve humanity almost, how do we strive for whiteness? Mm-hmm. How does that show up for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, again, I think the goal like um, success for my parents would have been to raise this Korean girl to be fully assimilated into whiteness, that that would have been it. And so whatever that was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was trying so hard and I think I, I got, I would say 
yeah, I think it is my proximity and my adjacency to whiteness that allowed me to achieve the way that I did. Um, and at the same time, never enough. Right. And so it's like, I was given some pat, like a little more leeway. Right. Um, but it was never, it was never enough. It was never enough for me. Like, yeah. So, Mm, yeah, so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. So now thank you for kind of taking us on that journey. How does your intersecting identities and how you've come to see yourself lend to the way you execute your labors of love throughout the world? Yeah, well, it's, I think in very generally figure out who we are, (laughs) then what we can actually offer the world it can be resonant. It's actually authentic. It, it's actually sustainable. It's actually, um, yeah, I, I like, I love the idea of resonance. Like it just, that sound reverberates so easily. And I feel like, I feel like I can tell when something is like true in that sense, like that. Um, so as I have investigated, like, I feel like like sinking into my, who I actually am no longer being in denial of it and allowing that to come out front. Um, uh, you know, I, so I was like, I want a space where Korean American adoptee women can get together. And, um, you know, you would be familiar with like with brave space. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I was like taking community organizing principles, recovery ideas in this brave space. And like, I want to create an environment for us to get together it, because I need it because I want it. So creating that led out of my own need and my own identity, um, wanting to create that space. And so, um, yeah, I think, and now that particular space is probably the, the, the best like my best life is with those women where we are and to go even back to what we were saying. And I have mirrors now, Mm. you know, and I've never had a mirror. So it's just, and to see that that space is both as much for me as it is for them. It's for us. I have an us now that I had never had before. I, I mean, it's crazy. So um, that can I pause yeah. you there? Yeah. Because I think those two things that you just said were super powerful. I felt them in my body. I don't want anyone to miss it. I have a mirror now. Mm. That is so powerful. Part of my journey recently has really kept bringing me back to the importance of reflection. Mm. How we need to be reflected accurately Mm. because I as children I know this to be true but it doesn't shift just because we get older we are constantly believing that we are reflected the accuracy of that reflection Mm. not always so Mm -hmm. so as a child they are looking at their environment assuming there's the that there is a reflection there Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why some of us, when we have grown up in environments that have explicitly stated and implicitly shown us that we're not enough, mm-hmm. that feels like a mirror 
the chastisement, the the not recognizing us for who we are, the gifts we bring, our authenticity. Well, that becomes the mirror through which we feel like we're looking at ourselves. It's the way we can internalize Mm -hmm. so many things about ourselves that aren't actually true. But if that is what I see. So it's like having one of the the circus mirrors in front Mm -hmm. of you. You Mm -hmm. don't know that's not really you. You just know that it's a mirror. That's what I see. So that must be what I look like. So to Mm -hmm. hear you say that you have an accurate mirror now, Mm -hmm. that you can look at other women and see yourself, that feels Mm. incredibly powerful to me. Mm. You saying it back to me just gave me chills. Like I feel it on my, my, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I had never, I didn't know that I didn't have it. Right. Yep. And so then it's like, I, this space um, is created and I'm looking at these women. We're all overachievers. We're all like, you know what I mean? But I'm looking at all of them and I'm hearing their stories and there's a vulnerability that we can't even explain. And I'm looking at all them. I remember the day when this moment, and this moment happens over and over again, but I remember the first time I was like, these women are amazing. Like how in the world did I even come across them? Like how did they even come into this one, this space? And then it occurred to me, if they're so awesome, I must be pretty awesome, right? And it was like this, it literally was, oh, this is us. We are, we are amazing women. And I just had never truly seen that or had that reflected back in that way to me before. Mm. So I, I recall having a conversation similar to this um, in a racially mixed group of folk. And I remember someone who, um, a white person, woman, asked the question, I'll, I'll say pretty genuinely, I'll give it, but with, I feel like, genuine confusion and curiosity. Like, so are you saying that only people who are alike or who have the same race can reflect each other? And so I know how I responded to that, but I'm going to pause on saying that. And, and, and just kind of what are your thoughts? If someone like hears you talk about this and go, well, wait a minute. So are you trying to say that only South Korean or Korean American women who are adoptees can reflect you? Or how would you respond to that? Yeah. I mean, in this moment, what I want to say is that I have never had my experiences that I've never had a truer reflection. Now, that doesn't mean that at other times when I've sat across, we've had conversations, Shonda, you know, we've been in rooms together where I feel reflected in what you're saying or right. Our, our stories, right. Can Mm -hmm. we affirm each other in that moment? Um, and so certainly there are other times that there are pieces, right. Uh, um, but I would say from in my experience, I just haven't had affinity groups like that before. And what a, I mean, what a privilege if you have lots of that reflection, probably a taken for grantedness of it. Um, but for for an adoptee, a uh, Korean American, you know, I got real, real specific with this group. And I, I, when I started, I thought, oh, maybe just Asian adoptees. Oh, maybe just right. But I got really, really specific and narrow because I was like, this is what I need. Um, this is who I want to see in the mirror, uh, you know, didn't know it was a mirror, but this is who I want to bring around me and, and see what happens. So, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Those are my thoughts in the moment as you asked no, that. I That's love a great it. question. Yeah. <laughs> it is a great question. And if I didn't have a lot of time or context, my answer would be yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. With more time and more time to elaborate, um, you hit on so many of the things. I think what's important for people to understand is this doesn't mean that. Um, so you use the word affinity group, being able to have that narrowed lens to go, oh, my goodness. I see me in you. You see you in me. That is an experience that can be so validating. It doesn't mean that the only people Sonia is engaging with are mm-hmm. Korean American adoptive women, uh, adoptive mm-hmm. women, right? But being able to have the space where you can come and see yourself reflected through experience, through physical characteristics, through a shared language you don't even know you speak. Right. There is a power in that. Mm-hmm. And so many of us who live on the margins, the margins were not created by us. Mm-hmm. The margins were created through ideas that get passed through institutions and systems that then say here here is good right what it's supposed to be and everyone is pushed to the margins of that living life on the margins means that you're constantly constantly looking at the dominant identities the dominant narratives and when and it doesn't look anything like you mm-hmm. it doesn't sound anything like you the experiences are so different and so yes Finding those places where the understood doesn't have to be explained mm-hmm. can be so healing to some of us who've had to explain something constantly over and over and over again. I have, n- I, I want to be, I want to see if I like, if this feels like, it feels like an accurate statement. If I realize I miss somebody, I'll come back and say it in a later episode. <laughs> but I feel like I don't recall ever being around a black woman who looked at my various hairstyles and be like, oh my God. Mm. So like, is that your real hair? You just saw me yesterday. <laughs> you saw what me you yesterday. <laughs> you know what I mean? And my hair was like an inch long in, in pink. And you see me today and it's five inches long in blonde. Like, and and there's just something about being able to go like, okay, sure, innocent enough. However, mm-hmm. when I see another Black woman, she'd be like, okay, girl, okay, hair. And that's mm-hmm. it. And we keep it moving. This mm-hmm. and the, the what, what gets, mm, what am I saying? For a lot of people who hold dominant identities across the span, right? I hold dominant identities in my language and being American, being cishet, heterosexual, or cishet, um, all that thing, right? Mm -hmm. The the curiosity can be daunting. Mm -hmm. The fact that someone always Mm -hmm. has to get a question answered by... Tip, tapping away at at parts of you and your identity it is it is exhausting mm-hmm. so when you can come within it with mm-hmm. a group of people who just get it mm-hmm. that is that is rest for the nervous system mm-hmm. you'd be mm-hmm. like I ain't even got to explain it you get it and so I shared that because I don't know in my spirit I just felt like there's somebody listening and be like but wait are you saying mm-hmm. take a deep breath mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what we're mm-hmm. saying Mm-hmm. And I love what you said. Have you taken for granted mm-hmm. that you might not have to turn 
look far to see your identity represented. I can shoot an arrow in the dark on Netflix and find a show that shows a relationship that reflects mine. Mm-hmm. Right? A heterosexual mm-hmm. married relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to look far. I don't have to search. I don't have to go, hey, anybody know any books? Nope. If I turn it on, more than likely I'm going to see that reflected. Do I take that for granted? Probably sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful that I have opportunities to be like, ooh, my relationship is reflected constantly. What is it like to not have that? So, yeah, I just wanted to kind Mm -hmm. of put that out there. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So let's turn the conversation just slightly to talk about art. Mm. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about how you are an artist. Um, one, I'm curious, have you always called yourself an artist? Have you always known you were an artist? No, that's been a journey for me. What was that journey like for you? Yeah, I always loved art. I loved creating. I think it's definitely my output. So whatever thoughts, conversations, I want to emote that. I don't have words often, you know, it'll be well, now it's abstract art is where I go. It's also been music. So yeah, I, but I would have never referred to myself as an artist because it felt too presumptuous maybe. And, or I don't know all the things It felt awkward to, to say that. Um, I've only sunk into that now in that, all that identity work, right. Uh, Hmm. being proud of who I am and what I do and that it is a way in which I respond, react, engage, um, and taking that part of myself a little more seriously. I mean, not too seriously, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did people refer to you as an artist before you referred to yourself as an artist? Or do you think you had that as a self-identity marker before other people did? Ooh. Um, I don't know that people would have called me that. I, I think people, I was mostly, a, you know, the, the abstract art has only, has only really come in the last 10 years. So prior to that, it was, you know, I'd be a musician or in church world. She's a worship leader or, or those, those sorts of things. But, um, I mean, even with, I would say growing up and most people kind of look at art as like, that's a great hobby, right? So yeah, I don't know. I think it, it felt belittled and that could just be my interpretation, but I felt like, I think if I would have said at 18, I'm going to be an artist, you know, I think my parents would have been like, well, you know. Well, that doesn't necessarily align with overachievement in some people's world. Exactly. For sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So I wouldn't get that feedback. That's probably why, you know, yeah, we can talk more about that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I I asked because um, it's only until recently and I can't say I I definitely don't lead with it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I I've allowed myself to say I'm an artist. And that came Mm -hmm. only because. I first had to acknowledge that I'm a writer mm. and it re- it took other people calling me a writer to see myself as a writer. I would say I was a person who writes. Mm-hmm. I'm a person who paints, but to create art. But when I say I'm a writer or an artist and there was something um, resistant to taking mm-hmm. on those um, titles, if you will, or or identities. And part of it for me, I think, is because there I felt like there was an inherent 
accountability that mm. came with saying I am versus I do. Mm, for sure. Um, mm. And and I had to sit with, can I be accountable to the gifts I've been given mm. by saying I am mm-hmm. versus just saying I, this is what I do. So I was just curious mm. about that yeah. for you. And so you kind of tipped into this conversation around feedback, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what role or mm, reframe, how has, if at all, your desire for and what feedback feedback looks like shifted since you've been going through your inner journey? Mm. Well, I want to say for, as you were sharing, I will say that there was a, a, an individual in my life who I respected as an artist. He's a sculptor. And when he started telling me I was an artist, that did do something internally for him, right? Was encouraging me in some way. Cause I'm like, oh, I validate you as an artist. So if you think I'm one, mm-hmm. then I must be one. So that's, and I think before that, anyone else who would have commented on my art making, I would have, because of my own low, low self-esteem, I was diminishing everything anyone said, right? But he would point out, you know, you're selling artwork. Like that's not, not everyone sells artwork. You know, there, there are lots of people who can create, but doesn't mean they're selling or, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. And he would kind of, right, reflect back mm-hmm. to me, myself. And then I was like, oh, maybe I am an, maybe I am an artist. But I honestly, again, thank you for pointing out that achiever thing. Because um, I think I would always put forward the other things, executive director, pastor, you know, a facilitator, whatever. I would put all those other things before I would identify as artist. And similar, I do art. You know, I paint some things. Um, I write some things, but I wouldn't have made that my identity. And and that has been a recent thing where um, it is my first output. My first impulse is to create something. And, and for me, really, it... it it makes sense. It really does make sense with my adoptee stuff and all that. But it's like, I want to make the invisible visible. That is honestly like at the core of my very being. So when I'm creating abstract art, I'm making feelings that Mm. we cannot see visible on a canvas. And then the feedback that I hope for and want is that is evoking an emotion or a feeling in someone else. Now, it might be different than the feeling that I put in, but when I'm creating, I want someone to have an actual emotional, you know, heart sensation, you know, body sensation response to it. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my intention. Yeah, I love that. So circling back, we talked about being in affinity groups and with people who share some of our overlapping identities as a way to feel reflected in the mirror we need. And I hold true to that. And you brought out another part about how I truly believe that in our relationships, whatever the depth, intensity, longevity of that relationship is, we are called to reflect other people. Mm -hmm. What that means is your sculptor friend who goes, you're an artist, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about that is some, I reflect some people by just simply being who I am because Mm -hmm. we have overlapping identities. Um, I recently joined a Facebook group for fat black people and it's amazing there. (laughs) 
it it was it. a place it, it's it's a place I didn't think I needed mm. but then I got there and I was like oh my goodness mm. yes it's not just the common joys and common struggles but it is just seeing when someone posts a picture and how I don't have to do the mental gymnastics that I normally have to do mm. to figure out what I might look like in a similar outfit, mm. right? Mm. That I have mm. to do every time I flip mm-hmm. through a magazine, if magazines are still a thing, or look through a, a yeah. online catalog where I have to do all of this mental gymnastics to go, what would my body mm. look like in those clothes, mm-hmm. right? So there is that. When I, as I show up physically, can't rep- reflect someone, what I do is I try my best to hold up a mirror mm. so that I can point out what I am seeing in them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they see it in themselves. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. And that can mean when, mm. when I'm with someone and they are sad, but sad hasn't been uh, a safe emotion to project outwardly to other people, but I recognize it. Sometimes it's just noting that it's okay to be sad. Sometimes that means sharing what I'm experiencing to give permission for that person to go, ooh, okay, so maybe it's vulnerable to share here. Mm -hmm. So we do not have to hold the identities of another person Mm -hmm. to reflect them. Mm -hmm. Now I think it's important to name that. Mm -hmm. Some of us, I'll include myself in this and many times, some of us are so self-absorbed in our own pain, our Mm -hmm. own trauma. It's a real thing Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we don't look beyond ourselves enough to reflect another person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's that thing of like, oh, we miss many opportunities What I found is it's so beautiful because if I can reflect another person and they can reflect me, all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. I don't have to spend so much time looking Mm -hmm. at me. Mm -hmm. Um, Sue Bird uh, was a professional basketball player. She retired last year and her retirement ceremony was recent and I watched it. And one of the people giving a speech about her mentioned humility and she she was saying that she found Sue to be humble. And she said for her, humility wasn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me in a way that I was like, I want to I want to sit mm-hmm. with that. And what I realized is the more I heal, the mm-hmm. less I think about myself mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I realized that I have more space and capacity mm-hmm. to actually consider other people in the mm-hmm. midst of our trauma. There's mm-hmm. no space to look at right. somebody else. I got to make sure I'm surviving. Um, And so when I hear you talk about reflection in that way, I definitely want to bring that up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's good. What I'm thinking about as you say that is for me, when I wasn't enough internally, if I haven't settled that for myself, I need it from everyone else. So I'm not going to be thinking about reflecting the other person. I'm like, what can you do for me (laughs) to validate my existence? Right. And so I'm trying to draw and extract from the other versus the healed whole person who is for me, I am enough. I don't have to write. And then the opportunity, I think to me, it's, it is the opportunity to, to reflect back to someone so that they too can write, whether they're sad or they're celebrating or whatever it is. Um, they too can know that it's okay. It's safe. right how they are in this very moment like yeah not having to shift change or adapt to to be as you say that it 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 then occurs to me that 
reflection comes from overflow. Mm-hmm. When I don't feel like I'm enough, every bit of whatever it is, I'm trying to put in my own cup because mm-hmm. it's it's dry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's not enough in there. But mm-hmm. when I do feel enough, my cup is full mm-hmm. and I get the extra. Well, mm-hmm. mine is full. So mm-hmm. I'm, I can give it to you yeah. because, well, my cup is full. And it reminds me of the times when I can put on, this is external, but I put on an outfit. I got my hair. Okay. I'm mm-hmm. going out. I look in the mirror and I go, okay, girl. Mm-hmm. Like I see mm-hmm. you. I'm feeling good about myself. Right. I do not notice or think about what other people are thinking about my outfit. Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm cautious, when I'm like, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about that? Okay, I'm gonna wear it anyway. Now, all of a sudden, every non-compliment feels like an insult. Absolutely. Right, I'm looking for it. Oh, they looked at me for three seconds and didn't say I looked cute. Why? Maybe it's not because again, right. what I'm thinking about myself or what I'm thinking other people are thinking about me is really what I'm thinking of myself. And so this idea of reflection comes from a space of overflow, from Mm -hmm. a place of abundance. I Mm -hmm. have enough confidence today. I can throw this at at somebody else. I have enough regulation today so I can go out here and help somebody else. That, that, That feels true to how I've experienced it. Yeah, there's such an openness and then the ability, the actual ability to see that like my eyes are all inward, right? If I'm going out, you know, feel, since with a lack, some sort of lack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when I go, when I'm feeling real good and I'm like, my hair is awesome and I, I'm looking good today, I'm complimenting everyone else's. Yes. Right? Fit. And so, but if not, otherwise I'm like waiting, right? I need that affirmation. Yeah. yeah that's mm. real. Yeah, that is, that is so good. So I want to kind of come back to identity. And can we talk a little bit about the intersection of race, gender, family status, which we've already talked about, and growing up in the Christian world? Mm-hmm. What what has this intersection and in identity around Christianity been like for you? Mm. Um, hmm. So I would say that like my faith. Um, I would use recovery language, God as I understand God, and I would assign that to this Christian God and um, this belief that the image of God is in all of us, spirit of God is in us, in creation. Like, it is foundational and and such a, uh, it is a primary lens through which I see the world. <laughs> also, um, I grew up in a uh, uh a narrow uh, white expression um, um, led and participated in in a lot of white evangelical spaces, but also in some adjacent, mostly white charismatic spaces. Um, And a lot of that stuff was not built for me, was not created for me. And so being a female and being a leader, um, was not always embraced or welcomed, um, being my, I would even say even my stature, just being an Asian woman who's five foot three and, and smaller. It's like just so easily overlooked and passed up. And yeah. So I don't know. Christianity as a culture has not always felt like a good fit for me. And at the same time, I can't get away from 
um, very real experiences that I've had and um, the way that it informs my ideas and definition of love and hope and the things that fuel me and, and allow me to engage in the world as a marginalized person and take hits and feel all those things. Like it, my, yeah, the identity that I understand. So I would say even as I, so when I went from adoption, then went backwards into abandonment, I went back even further to, okay, I do believe, have faith, trust that I, that I have a creator who had full intention of my existence. Um, but that was a moving, you know, I had to trace that back. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and find that to be really true for myself versus something I was told or, or it was in a song or, you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, it, 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 it yeah. makes so much sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm still discovering it. I'm still, and you know, I recently, I, I shared with you before I recently resigned as being a pastor of a church. And part of that is this identity journey. And can I keep leading in these spaces authentically, truly with resonance from my, you know, gut? Uh, and the answer in this moment was, I, I can't do that. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it's complicated. that was perfect. It, it is complicated. I <laughs> admittedly asked the question knowing there is, there, there can be a lot there. Um, one of the things you said that really, um, I don't want to say stuck out. It did stick out, but it got me to think in a moment about what it's like to be told a thing um, repeatedly in many different avenues, being told something, but then not having a felt sense of it. So what I mean is, well, pause. Let me start here so I can geolocate myself within what I'm saying. The way I describe it now is that the Christianity I was given was not big enough to hold the spiritual experiences I was having. Mm. But as a child, what I learned to do is I learned to chop up those spiritual experiences so that they would fit into the boxes that I was given. And when something didn't neatly fit into a box, I just tried to put it in the box that was closest to what made sense at the time. And now deconstructing for me means eliminating the boxes because I can't eliminate the experiences and nor do I want to. But I am currently sitting in this space of, I don't need to create another box for it to fit. Can it just be? And that that's, that's part of where I am on the journey. And so I think about uh, a Christian experience that might tell a person you are loved. You were created with a purpose. You're created in God's image. And there's a belief in faith that we're supposed to hinge on those words, yet we are treated by mm -hmm. people within the same institution mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. unequal, mm -hmm. unworthy, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. in God's image. Mm -hmm. And the con the conflict mm -hmm. that that presents to people who are told they are supposed to believe and cling to a word or words that are not replicated by the actions of the people speaking them. Mm -hmm. Chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is it is spiritual chaos. 
-hmm. And that that has Mm. that is what has led me Mm. in part Mm. to going, how do I decondition, which also means decolonize Mm -hmm. this experience? Because I can't deny the experiences that mm-hmm. I've had. I can't mm-hmm. deny my inner knowing, my intuition, my discern, the 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 real spiritual experiences I've mm-hmm. had, but mm-hmm. how that conflicts oftentimes with how I have experienced the institution mm-hmm. of church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you say that, the word that comes to me, it lacks integrity. It actually lacks the ability to externally and internally align, right? Mm. And, oh, I mean, yeah, anyway, makes me, I'm, you're bringing up anger. Like I'm, I feel my body need to move. I'm like, I yes. see your body. Oh. I'm like, oh yeah. And that's, that's what makes me so that it makes me angry. Um, and for a long time, I thought I was just sad <laughs> or I thought I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, it must be my interpretation. You know, I, and to your point, I, I guess I just put this in another box. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I just bury this. Um, yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is how, you know, I, I'm talking stereotypes here, but the trope of the angry black woman would mm-hmm. presume that anger is on the forefront and I constantly am experiencing it or expressing it with my neck rolls and my <laughs> tone of voice, right? Mm-hmm. But I also am aware when I spend so much time with my loved ones who identify as Asian American, anger... Mm is often not an emotion that they have felt throughout their lives that they are permitted to not just express, but feel. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if that feels resonant for you. Oh, 100%. I I was talking to my therapist about my experiences and I was like, oh, I'm just sad. This just makes me sad. And she's like, okay, give me more words for how you're feeling. And so I'm naming off all these words. And she's like, okay, let's take those to the feelings wheel and see where they're located. Mm. And they were all angry. I was like, oh, I'm pissed. And then that was sort of what started to give me permission, right? To, oh, I am angry about this, Mm. which was part of the grief. And it was like I was denying myself the opportunity to actually grieve the experiences that I was having. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. That is so powerful because I would imagine there are people listening who maybe it's not anger. Maybe you grew up in a real angry family. <laughs> so anger was on the forefront of how you expressed yourself with your family. It was okay to be angry but could you be sad? Could you have fear? There are a lot of us that when we recognize um, that there were certain ways we were not permitted to express ourselves, it doesn't mean that it disappeared. No, we just learned fancy words. So I love that. A lot of times when people use the feelings wheel, they have limited vocabulary. So they go, oh, uh, they only know five words. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm happy. So you start here and you go, what other words Mm 
Mm-hmm. My And then they're like, oh, they start to expand their vocabulary. But I love how you used it, which is you can also use it in the reverse. Yes, I'm feeling irritated. Um, I'm th- all these. And then go, well, when I bring that to the core of this wheel, mm-hmm. where does that land? And that mm-hmm. can start to give that permission to go, oh, that's fear. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. even know that I was afraid because fear wasn't a permissible mm-hmm expression or emotion to have Mm. so it is so important words do matter Mm -hmm. when we and and words matter words are not the only way we've talked about art music a lot of ways to express right Mm -hmm. but when I say words matter it's because Mm -hmm. from that word we can then lean into expression Mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent and that feels super relevant and important for us to do that. So now that we've kind of, I think, covered (laughs) a lot of the identities, you did kind of share that not only were you a transracial adoptee, but that you have also Mm -hmm. become a transracial adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. What's that journey been like, given the experiences you've had as an adoptee? Yeah, um, right now, if I'm honest, it I'm constantly feeling like what I'm not doing enough. Uh, You know, I I just, you know, I joke about it, but it's like, okay, I'm just planning for his therapy, right? A fund because he will need it. But I I think honestly, for me, there's a humility, I think that comes with it. So it's allowed me to be gracious um, for, uh, towards my my adoptive parent in ways that I have not wanted to be. So it just allows me some humility there. Um, it also gives me humility with him because I know there are things that I already know that his experience is not going to be the same as mine, though there are things, so speaking of reflection, right? There are things that I will be able to reflect um, inherently from our transracial adoptee experience. But there are also things he will... Um, He's a biracial black presenting. And so he's going to have a very different experience in this world than me as an Asian female. And so the awareness of that for him is present. Um, but in general, I feel like it's, um, hmm. yeah, there's an insufficiency. If I I could, I would, I would say that I, I, that's the feeling I have in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just a, you know, yeah, things that I lacked, people who look like me around him, right? Or um, uh, uh, the art that I have in my home, the music we listen to, the right, all these things that I'm, I'm wanting to be uh, food, which I, that seems so silly, but like I didn't, like for example, I didn't eat any Korean food until I was an adult, you know. And I'm like, why, you know? So I don't know. There are just different things that I'm, I'm aware of, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that I, yeah. I feel as I feel a loss in a lot of ways, uh, if I'm honest. I appreciate that honesty. It brought up a couple of things for me. One, the thread back to overachievement. Yeah. Right. I must do this perfectly. <laughs> or yeah, 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 yeah. Do so, you hear that? Is that I'm, coming out? <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> just, just I thought a, I hid that. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. So, but what I really appreciate about being able to pull that out is. The things we learn, the ways in which we learn to navigate 
our social structures, our family systems don't just go away, particularly mm-hmm. without examination, and they will show up mm-hmm. oh, in yeah. all aspects of our life. But what else came to me is a, a, a conversation. I'll, I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to go at it this way. There are times when I talk to same-sex loving couples And there are conversations and awarenesses that they have as a couple that can't be overlooked. Let's talk about roles. Mm. There are no gender roles, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So there are some very obvious awarenesses and conversations that same-sex loving couples have around roles Mm. because in het couples, Mm -hmm. whether you subscribe to them or not, there is this imparting on what the roles are supposed to look like based on gender, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, I feel like when I get to talk to foster parents and adoptive parents, there are these considerations that they take into account Mm -hmm. by nature of that child not being biologically theirs that I think all parents Mm -hmm. need to be talking about. I think Mm -hmm. all couples need to be talking Mm -hmm. about roles. Right. Mm, and so mm. when I hear some of the things like I always say, what do we say? College fun. If they choose to go therapy fun, I hope you go. <laughs> hey, let's just start mm-hmm. saving the ducats mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. OK, there's there is an awareness of, hey, my son is biracial black presenting. And there are just some things that I already know mm-hmm. I can't relate to. Yet there are some parents who could have a child who shares the same racial identity and still have no idea Mm -hmm. my girls Mm -hmm. are growing up in a different world than I grew up in Mm -hmm. in a different location Mm -hmm. in a different environment and Mm -hmm. it would be I think foolish of me to be like oh well I grew up as a black girl so Mm -hmm. I know Mm -hmm. but we Mm -hmm. can take that for granted in a way Mm -hmm. that adoptive Mm -hmm. and foster parents don't usually take Mm. it for granted Mm. and so I appreciate your answer because what it sounded like to me was oh you sound like a parent Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) I resonate with Mm -hmm. so much Mm. of that Mm -hmm. right my music choice our music choice is Mm -hmm. our music choice as the adults and people who usually control Mm -hmm. The radio and the car, Mm -hmm. you know, the food is what we want to eat and what we want to (laughs) cook and things Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. how do we not take for granted that our children Mm -hmm. might also have different desires, different needs, different preferences, and just not make the assumption that what Mm -hmm. we are providing is what they ultimately need or like. That Mm -hmm. feels like a reality that I hope all parents begin to think about. Mm. Mm, that's good yeah so good Mm. so I am curious if there is anything we didn't touch on or talk about um, any questions I didn't ask or anything you want to leave for the listeners as we start to finish up Mm. I mean honestly no I feel like we covered all the all the bases it feels good to me feels settled Um, yeah I feel good Good. So if people are interested in reaching out to you, maybe they have questions. Maybe they are a a Korean American adoptee woman. And it's like, how can I get in front of these mirrors? Or they are interested in your art. How can people find and get in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest way is probably uh, my website, 
uh, www, of course, <laughs> dot uh, com. That's probably the easiest. I'm on Instagram a lot. I'm, Instagram is probably my primary social media outlet. And so um, that is Sonia Wan Creative. Um, yeah, those are probably the best ways. I have email stuff there and 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 contact. And then, you know, my adoptee, in, in case there are Korean-American adoptee women that are listening, um, we meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific for an hour and uh, over Zoom. So it's just a virtual group. And um, yeah, just creating that brave space for us to come together and have conversations around. It, it might start off as kimchi, but after a while, we're really just talking about our adoptee experience. And um, yeah, it's just the full range, which is what I love. I love all the emotions. So it's a full range um, experience, but um, I love that. that happens too. So, And if you know of a Korean American uh, woman adoptee in your circle or your friend group, just sharing that information, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's helpful when we can connect people when we when who we are is not a mirror for someone that doesn't mean we can't be in close intimate mm -hmm. relationship with them. But mm -hmm. when we find resources mm -hmm. that yes. can also help them mm -hmm. to be in front of a mirror of their experiences and their identities. Um, I feel like that's a loving thing to do. Yes. So Yes. Sonia, it has been so nice to just catch up, to chat with you. And I just want to thank you so much for bringing so much of who you are so authentically to this space today. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the invitation and for the space. Appreciate Absolutely. Um, so you all, as usual, shout out Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, who does the production for the podcast, my nephew, Trey Angel, who provides all the uh, the music. And I want to thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget that I have a Patreon out there. Uh, I'm on all the social media outlets. And if you have suggestions for guests or for content, you can go to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Scroll down on the homepage and there's a place for you to fill that in there. Um, until we connect again, you all be well.